So the story of Ruth, story of Naomi. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you. Go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then Naomi kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. For I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At, at this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go, and so she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this, can this be Naomi? Do not call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi. 
For the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Ruth is an odd place to spend a bit of Advent. Isaiah makes more sense. He's got prophecies about the child who'll be called Emmanuel. There's other scripture that has a bit more power and punch to it, maybe slightly more uplifting than this first chapter of Ruth and Naomi's loss and being far from home. But Ruth is also a beautifully quiet story. There's no Christmas hoopla, there's no over-the-top angels, it's just two women. One returning home, and the other following a woman that she loves as her mother into an unknown future. The story of Ruth starts in the days when judges led Israel. And if you've ever glanced through the book of Judges or read in that particular time in history of Israel, time of Judges, not, not a nice time. The time when Judges ruled Israel was a time of violence and war, genocide, hunger, false gods, false prophets. Not particularly unlike our own time. The tagline of that time, scripture again and again says, that in that time Israel had no king. And in that time, each did what was good in their own eyes. Which, when left to our own devices, doesn't tend to be the most uplifting and kind actions. The time of judges, time of murder and war, violence and division. Which makes the story of Ruth, this, this chapter one, the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, a little surprising. Because Ruth is not full of geopolitical maneuverings or strong warriors or powerful leaders or warring armies or God moving through any of that. It's set in a quiet village with farmers and shepherds, people going about their ordinary, everyday lives. And it's a story of two women, like I said. Mother, mother-in-law, her daughter-in-law, which is always a unique relationship. And they're two widows, two childless widows, which in that time, it makes them the least likeliest pair of people to have a story told about them. Because they were of the poor and the vulnerable. They were not expected to have a story about them that would change the world. Just a stubborn daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law going back home. But if you noticed, as we read, the story did not start with them. Where did the story start? The story started how it was supposed to start, with a man, who led his family from their home in a little town of Bethlehem to a foreign country of Moab in search of jobs, of food, of a better future for their sons. 
and, and here you can hear there's two pieces here that we don't initially hear with our 21st century North American ears. Bethlehem. They left Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. We probably all know this from the Christmas story. It's the house of bread. And, and so we begin with a famine. The story begins with a famine, a shortage of bread in the literal house of bread. And then when the original Israelites heard that, that Amalek was going to be you know, leading his family to Moab, there, there would be <gasps> gasps of horror and disbelief because Moab, uh, Moab had quite the reputation among the Israelites. Moab was bad news. Moab was known for incest and brutality, enemies of Israel. No good Israelite, no upstanding father would lead his family to seek refuge in Moab. But Elimelech did, because he had no choice. There was no bread in the house of bread. There was no future, no food, no jobs, no prospect. What are you going to do for your family? So he packed them up and moved them to the land of their enemies. But then the story takes an unexpected turn. The man that we're introduced to, the man who starts the action in the story of Ruth, passes away. And then the narrator of the story turns to his sons, and they marry other women. They marry women, and they, this is where the story is going to go. It's going to be all about laughter and children and a future and a home in this foreign country. But then the story takes another unexpected turn. And both of Naomi's sons pass away, which is not how the story was supposed to go. We go from a story of a man's family beating the odds, surviving in a foreign country, to an old widow named Naomi with two daughters-in-law following her, also widowed. And they're all alone. It's not how the story is supposed to go. But there's the first glimmer of hope in the story. Naomi hears that bread has returned to the house of bread. And so she takes that, and she does, I think, what any of us would do in her situation. Grief and loss, we go back to what's familiar. We go back home. She packs up her life, and she goes back to Bethlehem, leaving everything behind that reminds her of her loss. She left Bethlehem in a time of famine with her husband and her two sons, and she returns to Bethlehem in a time of plenty without her husband, without her sons. The only two things she has left in the world go with her, Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law. <laughs> and in the first major scene that we have in chapter one, what's Naomi doing? She's pushing them away. She's telling them to go back home, to leave her be, to seek out a future for themselves, because she does not have one. I don't know if she was planning to do it all along. She lets them go with her a little way, and then she speaks a word of truth to them. She lays it out there, the cold, hard truth that she has no future for them. Go back. Go back, my daughters. 
Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I can still give birth? Provide sons for you to marry? Even if I lied to you and said, there's still hope, and I was married and pregnant by sunset, would you really wait years to marry again? We both know that's not going to happen. God has given me a bitter pill to swallow, and I will not be responsible for ruining your lives, too. Naomi's not lying to them. She pushes them away with the truth. I have no future for you. She has nothing to give them. No hope for the future. Now Orpah, Orpah gets it. She thought she could do it, she can't. She cries, she hugs Naomi tight, but ultimately she turns around and walks back home. Walks back to the hope of another husband, walks back to the hope of a new life. And as the figure of Orpah gets smaller and smaller and smaller, Ruth stays right where she is. She doesn't budge. Naomi could not convince her to leave. And as scripture says, Naomi just finally gives up. And so these two grieving widows continue on to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, it's like any good small town. Everyone recognizes Naomi and the gossip goes through the town. Naomi is back. Naomi is back. But as you can see from her response, the journey from Moab to Bethlehem has not lessened her grief. Naomi tells them to stop calling her Naomi. Do not call me Naomi, it means pleasant. I'm not pleasant. I am bitter. Call me Mara. I am bitter. The strong one has dealt me a mighty blow. I felt full of life, and God has brought me back home with nothing. I left here full of life, and God has brought me back with nothing. I was full of life. Now I'm empty. I was full of life. And now I'm empty. I don't think Naomi's words are something we often hear around this time of year. We want images of cozy homes and carol singing. We want gifts wrapped and cookies shared. We want time of family and friends of fullness and joy, that Hallmark card picture of perfection. We don't want, I was full of life and now I'm empty. But I think if, if we're honest, we know what Naomi feels like. We have known what Naomi feels like. That experience, that feeling of loss, of emptiness, of hopelessness. Grieving the loss of a husband or a wife like Naomi. And that loneliness can be suffocating. It, it can be feeling far away from a loved one even though they're just sitting on the other end of the couch. <laughs> and you're not sure if you're ever gonna feel close again. It can be the loss of a job and all that goes with it, your identity, your sense of purpose and self. It can be that long search for other employment, 
that just seems to never end. It can be the simple fear of being alone during the Christmas season, a time of family and celebration. We all carry a little emptiness with us. We might not share Naomi's situation, but we most certainly have said her words at one time or another. I was full of life. Now I'm empty. I was full of life. Through most of the story that we read, God is mostly spoken of by Naomi herself. She's grieving and angry and bitter that God has treated her like this. And she points her finger at him quite a few times, even in just this one chapter that we read. God has taken away husband and children, life and joy. God has left her empty. And she sounds a lot like Job. I mean, the line uh, from here could, could be straight out of Job's mouth. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. The Almighty has turned his hand against me. Sounds pretty Job-like to me. Except that unlike Job, Naomi doesn't get the benefit of God showing up. There's no divine interruption to her tirade, to her accusations. There's no assurance that God is even listening. Because at least for Job, God shows up and says, oh, you've heard me. <laughs> Naomi doesn't get that. Except for Ruth. Except for this Moabite woman who just won't leave her. Who insists on staying at her side. Ruth refuses to leave. And just so you know, there is no form or shape or law or anything that makes sense of why Ruth stays. There's no incentive. No one would expect her. She could return home to her mother's house and no one would ask why. It would be obvious. There's no expectations on Ruth that she would stay. But she refuses to leave. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Ruth does not owe Naomi anything. She's free, utterly free to return home, to her people, to her family, to her gods, to start a new life, a new family, but she doesn't. Ruth's words to Naomi, those are some of the most powerful words of commitment, loyalty, and love throughout all of scripture. I mean, these, these words from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law are often used as wedding vows. It is such an intense commitment to another person. Don't you force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I will live. Your people are my people, your God, my God. And where you die, I'll die. And that is where I'll be buried. Not even death itself is going to come between us. Wow. 
Ruth's words, Naomi, are a gift. A gift of grace, of love, of loyalty, of faithfulness. There's a word that can capture Ruth's words. It's a word that's used throughout scripture and throughout the story in Ruth. If you were to read through the rest of it, it comes up again and again and again. Hesed. That's the Hebrew word, hesed. And hesed has been translated as kindness, loyalty, covenant, faithfulness. Um, it's even used, the Hebrew word is used when uh, Naomi sends them off, right? May the Lord be with you. May God be gracious to you. Those are all ways of trying to get at hesed. May the Lord be kind to you. May the Lord be faithful to you. My favorite way of translating it is loving kindness. It's kind of a weird word that makes you stop and say, wait, what, what was that? But all of these don't quite grasp what hesed is. Love, faithfulness, loyalty, covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, it doesn't get at it. And, and as Pastor John pointed out, in all languages, there's always those, those few words that just pack so much into them that it takes a novel to not even begin to understand what that word means. Hesed is one of those words. Because hesed is used to describe who God is in all of his grace, mercy, faithfulness, love. Hesed holds within it this tiny Hebrew word, the essence of who God is to us. A God of unfailing loyalty, of grace-filled love, and of unmerited mercy. Hesed is all of that and more. And in this moment, Ruth speaking to Naomi, refusing to leave her, committing to her, clinging to her, this undeserved gift of grace and love, this is hesed. It's an embodiment of hesed. It's a love that goes beyond what the law requires, what even Naomi deserves. That's the essence of hesed. That's the heart of what Ruth is doing here in her promise to never leave Naomi. Even though Naomi can't see it yet, even though I think Naomi doesn't want to see it, God continues to show his hesed to Naomi, his loving kindness to her. God reveals his care and mercy and grace through this stubborn Moabite daughter-in-law who just won't do what she's told. Naomi is not abandoned. She's not left alone. She may not be able to see beyond her own emptiness and grief and loss and pain, but God has not brought her back to Bethlehem with nothing. She has hope in the unlikeliest of places. A Moabite woman, an enemy of Israel, with no connection to her anymore, but who clings to her, who stays with her out of a fierce love and loyalty. How do you experience Hesed this Advent? Where do you experience loving kindness? Perhaps in the midst of your own emptiness whether you are full of life or whether you are empty this Advent, 
How do you experience God's hesed? How is God showing his love to you this season of Advent? Can you see it? Are you able to see it? Or do you refuse to open your eyes? Because it can look so very different. It can look like a stubborn daughter-in-law who's not going to do what she's told. It can look like a note from a friend, an unexpected hug, a word of forgiveness, a hand held just a second longer, or some other surprising act that you just had no idea and weren't prepared for. Part of the waiting of Advent, part of the expectation of the season, is so that we keep ourselves open to our own emptiness, but also to the ways in which God moves in that emptiness, to the ways in which we see God's presence in that emptiness, to keep ourselves open to even the smallest glimpses of hope in the unlikeliest of places. During Advent, we're getting ready to celebrate and to remember God's ultimate act of loving kindness, of loyalty, of undeserved love, of hope unlooked for, a baby born in a manger, the word made flesh, our Emmanuel. And Jesus, who lived a life in the shadow of a cross and an empty tomb, says to us with the same conviction and fierce love and loyalty and commitment as Ruth said to Naomi, that I will not leave you. I will not turn away from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. And not even death itself is going to come between us. Those are the words of our Emmanuel, our God with us. I will not leave you. I will not turn away from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. And not even death itself is going to come between us. Chapter 1 ends with this. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ordinary, everyday. A story that began in famine brings us at the end of a chapter to a time of harvest. A story that starts with death brings us to the edge of life and hope. And a story that starts with loss and loneliness ends in the midst of community and friends. It's the beginning of Ruth's story, it's the beginning of Naomi's story, it's not the end. And in Advent, we live that same story, that movement from emptiness to fullness. And wherever you are now, today, is not the end of the story either. because of Emmanuel, God with us, who will never leave us or forsake us, who will not even let death itself 
stand between us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our faithful God, wherever we are on our journey this Advent, whether we are full or empty, remind us of who you are. Remind us of who your Son is, our Emmanuel, our God with us. May we see the ways in which you continue to care for us, even if we're in a season of emptiness. Open our eyes to the ways in which you continue to love us with a fierce, fierce love. Whether we are empty or full, you will remain our God with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.